The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. So in my first week of work here at LinkedIn, my boss Dan called me out. It was kind of embarrassing. We were coming out of a meeting where I'd been scrolling through my cell phone. I hadn't really thought that much about it. I did it all the time at my last job. But Dan pulled me aside and he said, we don't look at our smartphones during meetings here. Sure enough, I began to look around and smartphones were all turned off and mostly hidden from view. Dan's correction was one of the many small actions that pile up to determine a company's culture. And the culture is key to how we get things done at work, at LinkedIn and everywhere else. When a culture works, work works. But how about when it doesn't? Like when an office feels downright toxic. Can you change how you expect people to work together? You do have to move the culture. You can't dictate the culture. That's Ben Horowitz. He's a venture capitalist who's had a ton of experience with this. He's helped build several companies, including the VC firm Andreessen Horowitz that he now runs with Mark Andreessen. And he's been investing in and advising companies for more than a decade. Ben's a bit of a management guru among startup founders in Silicon Valley. They often reference his theory that companies need different kinds of leaders when they're facing threats as opposed to when business is good. Call it the wartime peacetime theory. His latest book is called What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. Here's Ben. You know, people, Ben, always say it's sort of a, an accepted platitude. Well, everything has to do with culture. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> what, what is culture exactly? Yeah. So, you know, and I, uh, I love what the way of the warrior, the kind of the code of the samurai says, which is culture is not a set of beliefs. It's a set of actions. And that really gets into it because in a company, it's all these things. It's like, well, your employees, like, if they get a phone call, are they going to return it, like, in five minutes, in an hour, the next week? Never. You know, is ghosting people okay? Is showing up to a meeting on time the thing? Or is it 20 minutes late? All these things. And they're not in the mission statement. They're not in the OKRs. They're not in the KPIs. They're not anything that you kind of directly manage. And then, you know, you can say, oh, well, like, are they living the cultural values in their performance review? Well, like, how do you really know that? Like, you know, you don't know if they return that phone call. But it's those behaviors that that's how the company feels to work. You know, that's what it feels like to work there. That's what it is like to do business with. That's the imprint on the world. And so, like, how do you have a say in what that is? Uh, turns out to be a really complicated question. And yes. it's not really clear to me the degree to which you can even have a hand in prescribing the culture. Maybe you can drive it to some degree, but to what degree can a leader actually determine it? Yeah, so that's a great thing. And, you know, my friend Steve Stout, who does a lot of, like, cultural marketing, he always uses the term move culture. And I think that's the right term. Like, how do you move culture? And, like, how do you move it in a direction? Because that's what you end up doing. And I think, you know, that's absolutely possible. And, yeah, you can't get it, like, comprehensive. Everybody's on culture all the time. Like, you know, we never have a cultural misstep. Like, nobody has that. Like, they might say they have it, but that's because they don't know what's going on in their own organization. There's no way. But there are ways to move it. I'll give you like a, a small example that we do kind of at Andreessen Horowitz. So we have this 
cultural idea, which, by the way, the idea is one that I think every venture capital firm has, which is we really want to respect entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurial process. And it's like, okay, that's very easy to say because our business depends on them. But the way the business works is they come to us and ask for money. So, like, think about that dynamic. Like, you're sitting there like, I got the money. You want the money. So that makes me the big important person and you the little person asking for my money, right? Like, that's just how it feels to everybody. And so as a result, I would say most firms are very disrespectful of entrepreneurs. And you can see it. You know, they show up like a half hour late to meetings. They, you know, they're just flipping with them. They, you know, they speak to them in a disrespectful manner. They don't get back to them. If they reject them, they never – they just ghost them. It's like, oh, you came and pitched me and I, like – and then I'm never going to talk to you again. And so all that goes on all the time. Um, so we didn't want that. And I knew that saying it wouldn't do anything. So we kind of started with, okay, if you're late to a meeting with an entrepreneur, it's $10 a minute. And I don't care if you like had to go, oh, you had to go to the bathroom? Five minutes late, $50. I don't care. You had an important business call, 10 minutes late, it's $100. I don't care how important the business call was. And people go, why? Like, Ben, why in the hell do I have to pay to work here? Like, I'm doing I'm doing business. I'm going to the bathroom. I'm a human being, like, going to lay off of me. And I'm like, look, you need to plan when you're going to go to the bathroom. And you need to plan because if it was your wedding, you'd be on time. Like, you have to have that kind of respect for what they're doing. It's very important. It's very hard to build a business. And if you don't understand that, then you can't work there. And that story and the fact that they're reminded of that story every single time they show up to a meeting, that's what moves culture, you know, not the value on the wall. So an example that you cited in your book um, was Marissa Meyer when she got to mm-hmm. Yahoo. Yep. And um, I, it's been years, and I bet most people still remember this, even if you don't work in tech. Oh, yeah. One of the things that she did early on is she said— Okay, you have to come in. No more working from home. I don't. Yep. I don't care what your circumstances yeah. are. You got to show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People really threw her under the bus for that. Oh yeah, yeah. Like people went crazy on her. Um, why? Why is Protesting. something? <laughs> yeah, like I mean, the online stuff. It was brutal. Yes. Well, why is something like that? And and you would argue, and you did argue in your book, mm-hmm. that that was pretty important at that moment for what she was doing with Yahoo's culture. Oh yeah. So like, look. Yahoo, you know, for whatever you think of it strategically, anything else, people literally weren't coming to work. Like, so it had gotten to that point where, so there's a point in any culture where, very dangerous to get to, but where people are rewarded more for not caring than for caring. And people who are who care are then punished. And so if you worked at Yahoo at that time and you came to work and you worked your butt off it wouldn't make any difference, you know, like you couldn't get a decision made, things wouldn't happen, you couldn't move uh, the company forward. It was just a big bureaucracy that couldn't do anything to the point where people figured that out and they didn't even come to work. And they kept getting paid and they kept getting promoted and they kept getting like salary increases and all that stuff. So that was the culture she was dealing with. And look, that culture is more common than you might think in companies because as soon as a company gets bureaucratic, it just like it starts rewarding not caring. And so she had to make people care again. And <laughs> and she knew she was right because she looked at the VPN logins and like the people who said they were working for home weren't actually working from home. They weren't connecting. They didn't even have access to, you know, whatever the source code or anything. So like there's no way they were doing any work. So she was like, okay. We're going to change the culture right now. 
everybody comes to work. You don't come to work, you're fired. And, you know, people are like, oh, that's it. And, like, maybe in the context of the world, not allowing work from home, you know, might have been too cruel and harsh. But at Yahoo, it was exactly the right cultural move. And, you know, and like by most accounts, if you talk to people who worked at Yahoo, she did move the culture in the right direction on that. Now, like ultimately it didn't work out. And there's a lot more that goes into company success than just culture. But, uh, you know, I give her full credit for that. For sure. So you bring up something that we all know to be true, which is that a lot of corporate cultures, they can introduce a heck of a lot of drag, bureaucracy, yeah. and culture can kind of flatline. I understand that maybe there's something you can do about it in a leadership position. What if you work at a place like that? I, I would say this. This is the one thing that as a leader, like a lot of times leaders will know things. There will be problems in the company. They'll deprioritize them. You know, they will need fixing, but it won't be the most important thing to fix. And so it'll go. And so, you know, sometimes as an employee, like pointing out something that the leader already knows isn't that productive. Um, but on cultural issues, it's been my observation that the leader rarely knows that the culture has gone adrift because they're not living in it in the same way that an employee is. So I think that raising the issue but being very specific about it is important. So like a lot of times we're like our culture is messed up or our culture is like lazy or our culture is toxic. But that doesn't get to the thing. You have to actually get to, okay, why are you saying that? And if you do that and the leader is good enough and hopefully they've got the skills and these cultural skills are hard, um, then you can at least make a contribution on getting it back to where it needs to go. I do think that everybody's behavior, um, the, the other thing is, you know, particularly if the company is small, you know, the culture of the, even the kind of individual contributor leader employees tends to, you know, like it tends to be very infectious. And it's why you love people who come in, you know, who you can hire, who are just generally like positive and energetic, because that's infectious. And people who are negative all the time, they're infectious. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the more you can bring your kind of best actions and cultural self to work, that that's super helpful always. So you talk about honesty in your book. Mm -hmm. And that's tricky. Because you want to be an honest person, <laughs> yep. but sometimes people don't want to hear the whole truth. Right. Yeah. No, I think that it's it's more like ability, <laughs> you know, I, I think is what kind of comes into people's mind. And oftentimes, you know, if you want somebody to like you, you tell them what they want to hear. And what they want to hear may not be the truth <laughs> and often isn't the truth. And particularly if you're the leader of an organization, uh, it's very frequent that like people don't want to hear the truth or what you they really need to know and so forth and so it's work you know it's why uh, so many people don't give feedback because they they struggle with being honest they don't want to be honest because they don't want that person to go wow i don't like you i don't like the fact that you even told me that about myself and it takes great skill to do it and so forth so you know i wanted to people to at least acknowledge like how hard it was to be honest because people go, oh, yeah, like we're high integrity, we're honest, we're this, we're that. It's like those things are really hard and nobody actually is 100% like they're never, they never are. So like let's deal with it as a hard problem and see how we can kind of build up those skills of telling the truth. Right. So in your book, you looked at cultures that have been built over long periods of time. 
And I was wondering how you can really make the comparison when today's tech companies are often young, like still new. Like Facebook, it's what, 15 years old? Right. Yep. No, 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 absolutely. Right. Well, but Facebook has the advantage that it has a hierarchy, (laughs) like a a strict hierarchy. Um, So you have a lot of things you can do in a company that are much harder to do in a society or a country. Even though, kind of getting back to the earlier point, like you do have to move the culture. You can't dictate the culture. Uh, that's a that's a real issue and challenge. But as supreme leader, you are much, much more powerful in the culture than any given samurai might have been or, or that kind of thing. So I, I think a lot of these things are very, very possible in the business context. And, you know, and people have done them to great effect. In your earlier book, you wrote about the wartime and the peacetime CEO. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, as a, a reporter in Silicon Valley in the years after that book, mm-hmm. any CEO of any startup I interviewed— One more time. <laughs> —began by rolling out a philosophy of leadership yeah. underneath which was that philosophy. Yeah. So first of all, I want to spend a moment for our listeners sure. who aren't familiar with it, sort of explaining what the philosophy is. So if you look at any of the business literature, certainly up to that time, you had kind of a set of rules that everybody agreed on, like, you know, you delegate and empower, you don't publicly berate somebody, you know, you, you know, and on and on and on. And I and like that was kind of the academic idea of how you ran anything. But then you had like the top leaders in the technology business who I paid a lot of attention to, like Andy Grove and Steve Jobs and so forth. And I was like, all the stories about them, or many of them were about like publicly humiliating people and these kinds of things, and then getting way into the details, like crazy into the details. And you go, well, how do you reconcile those two things? And, um, you know, the more time I spent on it, I realized there's this kind of notion of like, there's a peacetime company. And I think like Google under Eric Schmidt was like a really classical peacetime company in a sense in that they had this like invincible money printing machine called Search. And so they really wanted to empower everybody, you know, and like almost like a, I think they used like a university as a, as a metaphor um, to come up with ideas, to be innovative and so forth. Um, and so it it was kind of a peacetime kind of culture as opposed to Steve Jobs who always felt he was under siege (laughs) Um, and he's like, you know, has that wartime thing. And the big difference is like, okay, how do you make a decision? Uh, And a decision in wartime is like the whole thing is it's got to be right and fast. And so that means the leader is often going to have to drop down. They're going to not be able to tolerate too much, you know, yik yak about it and these kinds of things and we're just going to go and move and the person who knows the most is going to make that decision and we're going to keep you know we're going to keep it moving uh, you know as opposed to in peacetime when it is about more like developing your people developing kind of innovation from all over the company let a thousand flowers bloom all that kind of thing and and so that was just my attempt to kind of lay out that difference so Against that backdrop, I want to talk about how culture shifts in each situation mm-hmm. and how you should attend right. to culture in each situation. I mean, is wartime yeah. an invitation to forget culture? Uh, no, I, I don't think it's a, it's just a different kind of decision-making framework. A lot of the cultural things might remain, but it is a different mode. And it is, it's not forget culture. 
it's it shifts to a different kind of culture, which is a you know what what I'd refer to as like a more military culture, more command and control, more um, you know more about how do we get to the right spot. But a lot of the little things in the culture stay the same. You know, like do we care about frugality? Do we care about timeliness? Do we care about you know like what art is you know how do we view quality versus features? All these kinds of elements end up still being relevant whether you're peacetime or wartime. But it's a pretty, you know, it's a difficult transition, I would say, for other leaders to make. So, like, it was very interesting to me when you went from kind of Eric Schmidt to Larry Page. And Larry was very focused on a very specific wartime thing, which was Facebook. And this is uh, Google for Yeah, our Google. Listeners. Yes, Google. And he did get, like, a very powerful result out of that, which is he, he got a unified profile for Google users, which is still, like, a massive asset for Google today. But if you looked at the executive staff that Eric had, other than David Drummond, like they all were gone pretty fast. And uh, it was a complete new executive team. And I think some of that is if you're used to working in peacetime and then all of a sudden you're in war, like a lot of your motion just doesn't like the whole place doesn't feel the same. All right. We're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break, Ben gets into toxic cultures. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back with Ben Horowitz. In his book, Ben looks to the Haitian Revolution for strategies on radical cultural overhaul. At the turn of the 18th century, a former slave named Toussaint Louverture led the only successful slave revolt in modern history. To do so, he had to build a military force out of a slave community. Now, how exactly did he do this, Ben asks? What does it have to tell us about how to overhaul broken company culture? The fact that Toussaint Louverture took a slave culture and built it into one of the great military cultures of all time shows you can definitely change culture and get rid of flaws. And the biggest flaw in the slave culture um, was trust. Right. Um, And and this is... This is, yeah, which is a so fundamental story. This is a fundamental story to your book. Yes. Which yes. is the story of the slave revolt in Haiti, the only successful slave revolt in all of history. Yes. Yes. Um, so maybe you can take a moment to explain why that yes. was mind blowing. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the only one. Um, so which is, and and uh, it's funny because you think about the the company thing. It's like, well, like why are they? It's really hard to move culture that far, but. Why do slaves not successfully revolt is an interesting question itself. It's like, well, they certainly are motivated. <laughs> um, you know, they'd be willing to die. But it comes back to this thing where, you know, as part of the dehumanization process of becoming a slave, you lose your control of tomorrow. So you, you just end up, it's like, well, like we will ask yourself, you're like, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do next week? What am I, what's my five-year plan? Like if a slave, those aren't thoughts that make sense because you don't own your future. You don't own your today. And trust as a concept, which is a very fundamental cultural concept, is based in this idea of, you know, I'm going to do this for you today because I trust that down the line you're going to do something for me. And so it's very weak in a slave culture. 
in a military context, it's essential because if you don't trust the order, then nothing works. And so Toussaint had this problem of he had this slave culture that he needed to move into this military culture. And not only did he do it, but he did it at tremendous scale. So that you know, at its peak, the Haitian Revolution had five. He had five hundred thousand troops. You know, the largest slave revolt in U.S. history was five hundred, and so that just showed like what he was able to achieve organizationally with with these cultural techniques. You know, and he did like, and he was obsessed with culture, just absolutely obsessed. He incorporated, you know, officers from like the French and Spanish armies into his army. And it was because he needed that culture, that military culture. He needed to transplant it over. Um, and he did it, and it moved, uh, which is, you know, just, I would say, like, super spectacular. Well, Ben, it makes me think that you are unique in that you live and work and operate in a world of hypergrowth, yes. which is something that did not exist even at the beginning of my career, certainly not at the scale that it does today. <laughs> Definitely not my career either, yeah. <laughs> it is and, weird. And, and in fact, you live in the, the epicenter of these companies that that might hire hundreds and even thousands of people in the space of a few months. In that case, what do you do about culture? Well, I think that that is really hard. And I think that it means that onboarding and orientation and like how hard you push and move the culture has to be much more intense because you're exactly onto the right thing, which is when people come into a company, they bring whatever culture they have with them. And if you don't systematically assimilate them into your culture, you are going to assimilate into their culture. And the higher in the organization they are, the more kind of pronounced that is. I think, you know, this is why I'll tell you, you know, when I work with CEOs, I say, like, stop talking to me about your hiring pipeline and, like, how many resumes you have and, like, how many interviews. I don't care. I want to know about your onboarding and integration pipeline. Like, what does that look like? How do people get trained when they get the job? Do you have a plan to train them before you put out that wreck? Like these are the things that end up mattering much more culturally. And then like how are you communicating your culture and like what does their first day look like? Um, you know, I think people don't think about it through that lens enough, but that's that's the right lens. What is it? What does it mean to come into your company and how do they how does a new employee believe they have to adapt themselves into it? So getting very prescriptive and pragmatic for a second before we end here, what sort of three or four tips do you give your portfolio CEOs and other many people who ask your advice yeah. as they set forth and, and hire? I won't let somebody sign their offer letter unless they've read our culture document and signed it and said, I agree that I'm going to follow this culture. Then when they come in, first new employee orientation, it's me and I'm teaching why we have a culture and what it means and exactly how it's defined and why I care about it. And so, like, setting the tone like day one is really, really, really important. Um, and then it also helps me see when people are off culture and enforce it. Uh, so that would be kind of one tip. But, like, it's very—one of the reasons I wrote the book, and they, the reason I wrote the book in the way I did is— there's not ABCs of culture. Like, there's not like, here's the three things to have a good corporate culture. Like, that doesn't work. You have to understand the gestalt of what culture is and how it works and how it moves and uh, how it backfires on you and bites you and gets weaponized and all these things. 
Um, and then you can start to say, okay, how can I apply some techniques to my situation so that I can move culture in the right direction? It makes me think about, you know, I've been here, Ben, about a year. Mm-hmm. And my first day of my first week, I went into a leadership meeting, yeah. sat down, and I did what I do in leadership meetings, my past employer. And afterwards, you know, my boss mm-hmm. pulled me aside and he said, hey, you were on your cell phone in that meeting. We don't do that here. Yeah. It was one sentence that he said to me. It humiliated me, but he did it privately. Mm-hmm. Never pulled out my cell phone again. Also understood immediately the culture. It is. It has. It was the on ramp yeah. to how to work here. Yeah, and that's amazing. And you know, I because everybody wants to work in an environment where, like, when I'm with you, like you're present and I'm present, but like one person isn't present, and then like that's contagious. And so, you know, it's a great thing. Well, thank you so much. This was really great. All right, uh, great to see you, Jesse. Cool. That was Ben Horowitz, a founder at the firm Andreessen Horowitz. And I keep thinking about the distinction he drew between being honest and being liked. How we say we want to be honest, but maybe what we want even more is to be liked. What do you think? Drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com or post on LinkedIn using the hashtag hellomonday. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Laura Sin. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Riondo is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini and Victoria Taylor wrap everything up in a neat bow. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. So, so what's, what's the next book? I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know if I have any more ideas. <laughs> like, this was my kind of uh, longest incubating How about a book idea. on hip-hop? You know, I had a chapter in this book on hip-hop. I had so many good things in it, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite get it to work, um, you know, in the book. And so I, I was like, I'm not going to do it wrong. So I just pulled it out. Not only is it, would it be a great story, it's a great cultural story because, you know, it's the poorest kids – with nothing and not even the support of like the R&B guys. Like, so nobody would play it on the radio, you know, MTV wouldn't play any of the videos, nothing. Just like Ralph McDaniel's story is so unbelievable how he decided to start Video Music Box. And then, then once you had Video Music Box, like you had all the videos on and like, and he's running around, he's going into parties in the most dangerous neighborhoods in like the world, like in, you know, in the party, super hot and he's sweating and he's got his mic and his video guy and he's like, I'm going to give a shout out to, and like, and that was the term shout out and like he just invented it <laughs> in the thing.